hardline Dan now do an intro of the show, just or Sarah because yeah, yeah. or whoever, yeah, yeah. We'll just it. like mm-hmm. describe uh, the show. So yeah. today I'm really excited because all three of us have been obsessed with the show for a long time. Say uh, the name of the start the again. Sh- we haven't said Mad Men yet. We've said like, Mad. Okay, we've <laughs> sa- we said Mad Men, but we haven't said this is an episode about Mad Men. This is an <laughs> like, episode about. Do it. <laughs> you said it reactively and angry at Tom. Say it declaratively. Okay. Which is understandable, <laughs> but not what we need. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> That's the cold There's open. the intro. All right, thank you all for joining us today. Everybody and welcome to Paragon Marathon. I'm one of your sibling hosts, Dan, and I'm a Dan. Yes, I am, and I can't help but podcast, babe. Oh, that's the best song on the show. It's, right? That's going to be in my head all day. It's Thank been in you. mine since we started Bad Men again. I was like, oh, you can put Dan in there. Uh, I'm Sarah, but uh, Pizza House! <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite lines we have a bad habit i'm not gonna lie where we stopped writing intros and instead just started quoting being like, <laughs> yeah like just saying a non sequitur quote and being like i'm tom i've <laughs> put in a very solid theme uh, i will put my name i mean into dan a wrote a song <laughs> yeah you rhyme your name every single time yeah. it's not fair <laughs> Well, uh, do you want to do an intro? Should we try again? <laughs> I definitely don't have one. Okay. Uh, but I'm very willing to keep criticizing all of your Thank intros. You. <laughs> what a valuable service. Thank you. <laughs> oh, wow. right. I'm Tom, and I'm a parasite. <laughs> I'm, I'm Sarah, and I don't think about you at all. <laughs> I'm real good. Yeah. I'm Dan, and it's a shameful, shameful day. (laughs) (laughs) Not great, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) That's the problem with Mad Men quotes, is they could be anywhere from anything, and there's so much good writing, how can you be expected to remember all of it? Yeah. I have now started saying, every time I need to go to the bathroom, I've got tickets to the Bean Ballet. (laughs) (laughs) And... I'm going to say it every time my baby needs a diaper change. <laughs> Looks like someone's got tickets to the beach. That's why people have children, for prop humor. Exactly. I knew it. Oh my gosh. This is an episode on Mad Men, a show by Matthew Wiener. I think it started... <laughs> no, he's a wiener, though. We can leave it at that. <laughs> Isn't that his name? Wiener. <laughs> 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 no, it's dunking on him, and that is the preferable way to do it. Oh my god, I'm gonna try one last time, and if not, no, I guess I'll that's just great. die. <laughs> no, that's perfect. That one sucked. <laughs> it's a show by Matthew Weiner. Uh, it started in the early 2000s. Um, 
I wish I had a year on that. Point of order. Whiner is also a word to make fun of someone. So I guess I'm still happy. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) We're never getting through this. Please continue. Uh, uh, 2007. 2007. So, okay, late 2000s. And uh, it was uh, basically a show about um, an advertising agency, but more specifically a man who was like the creative genius of this advertising agency, a made-up one called Sterling Cooper. And um, it started in 1960 and uh, ended in, I think, 1971. So it spans 10 years of this man's life and uh, all of the people in his life and operating at this agency. Uh, It really goes into uh, the moral forays of uh, advertising, which I personally have some stakes in because... I have an existential crisis about that all the time. (laughs) Uh, But it's also very, like, I think just as much or more than that is it is a show about America's relationship with the 1960s. Yeah. Like, their most storied decade in the modern age. Idealized in a lot of ways. But also a human take on it, right? Like, the average person or not. Yeah, a bunch of different people in different socioeconomical circumstances responding to these historic events. Yeah. This exactly. Is the- that is like the show, right? Like yeah. even it's the wire, but happy. Even the people who are living the picturesque American dream, yeah. we're seeing how like ridiculously fraught that is and how unhappy they are. And we have a bunch of main characters who are women. The show mm-hmm. is also mostly written by women, which is like something that you basically don't get with like nostalgic American TV <laughs> no. or movies very often until yeah. more recently. Uh, and yeah, they are. They are. Uh, the events of the plot are very much about the ways that they are exploited and manipulated and abused by their employers and by the men in society and yeah. uh, by capitalism. Yeah. And oh. another reason we want to talk about this is because the show is so well made that it's really it holds up to the weight of thrusting the heroic framework on top of it. Yeah. <laughs> Right? That's like a it very interesting way of putting it. Designed See, that's the patriarchy shit. we're talking about, Dan. Hold up this <laughs> why, frame. Why does it have to thrust? <laughs> <laughs> I was like determined to find actionable words that didn't change the metaphor. <laughs> and I don't know that well, I, I succeeded. That. Yeah, you know but how I frames never are lived my life that way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like, yeah, before I've described it as a strong skeleton to hold all the story meat. And uh, that hasn't left my mind <laughs> since <laughs> for the, like, hi, I'm the, his, the Campbellian homunculus. that's fascinating the show has a the show is immaculately written Mm -hmm. for how complex and unwieldy like a seven season show is with an enormous Uh, cast yeah it's like a hundred movies put together into like the well no but see the problem with that comparison is that is what we are constantly getting that is like the number one pop culture sensation is like yeah turn it into 30 movies and like (laughs) when you do that all of them are like barely strung together and like repetitive and pointless. I meant more in the sense of like production value and like, uh, I know. Yeah, totally. Not in the framework of everything having to be this self-contained. We find closure at the end of every episode, like a rubber band reality is the term they use for shows like the Simpsons. Hmm. I'm just saying that language like infiltrates all of our metaphors about how like TV is actually respectable. And it's like, TV has been better the whole time. (laughs) Like, (laughs) And now it's not even close. Right. Oh, and my like, God. Yeah. I know. 
it can come down to like how much uh, you know group of writers or a production team is allowed to like look into the future. Like how many seasons do we want to make as opposed to what we're mm-hmm. obligated to do? Uh, that's a great question in terms of yeah, what you're allowed to do on television versus the cinema was grossly different for a long, long time. Shows like The Sopranos, Sex and the City, I mean, HBO in general, was like pushing that boundary a lot because they weren't, you know, just basic cable. Like they could get away with a lot, lot more going Mm -hmm. on TV. And Mad Men uh, kind of came right in the middle of that or after that to swoop in and show scenes of sex and intensity. And then also throw in a ton of like, nuance and beautiful writing and have the budget to make something really spectacular. Uh, Let me say this about the sexiness. Yeah. Mad Men is way sexier than HBO shows. And yes, you never see even the titty. You You see see one side of a boob of many different boobs. (laughs) It's the the, like, you you don't see a nipple. In the first episode, (laughs) you see pasties on like a bare breast. You see. Oh, that's true. No nipple. (laughs) <laughs> no, you you do at one point see Roger's entire ass, but that's, that's it. True. My point is that like the the it captures a lot of sexual energy in a very authentic way, and a lot of that is the sound. Like we hear every breath that every yeah. character takes in this show, <laughs> and it works. Uh, it makes it feel very intimate. But like like they are they are kissing hard into their microphones. I was I was about to do it, and I won't because it's intense. Yeah, don't do that to your siblings. But yeah, I I just meant like you know, there's always this conversation of like, well, HBO will show us Dom. Yeah. <laughs> you don't really and get well, like the art in which whoa, there's whoa, Dom. Whoa, whoa. What do you yeah. have against Dong on TV? I have no. I I wish there were way more Dongs on TV. Dong I really Draper. do. I've seen Euphoria. <laughs> Dong like, Draper. <laughs> yeah, we could use a little more Dong draping. <laughs> I think Euphoria was the first show that I'm aware of to show erect penises. Ooh, that's, that's a non sequitur. I might just go ahead and cut it. Okay, <laughs> just cold open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna cut all of the bits where we say "there's the cold open" together <laughs> <laughs> to really capture the struggle. Yeah. Uh, this show is breaking ground in a lot of ways in the early days of TV getting acclaim that it deserved. Like, yeah. Let's just put it that way. So. Looking back, they I know that I'm just interrupting over and over, but they call it like this like golden age of television mm-hmm. or or like the maybe they call it the Renaissance. So there's some name that they use and it starts with the Sopranos basically. And yeah. so as you said, Mad Men comes along at a time like on the major upswing, like perf- almost perfectly timed mm-hmm. for this like prestige prestige serialized drama thing to like really get recognition and funding. And allow like be successful enough and have a big budget enough to allow them to be so ridiculously uh, attentive to yeah. the details. Because this isn't an easy show to make. I mean, the costumes alone, finding like a, yeah. a, making a set and all of these incredibly accurate to the time costumes and locations, and even just the the way that the actors had to dedicate themselves to the role. Like this isn't easy to do. It's not like just jumping into a modern character. Or like some fantasy where you get a little bit more leeway. Like the times were pretty rigid. And honestly, yeah. people like us who weren't alive in the 60s, like there's a lot that we can't really determine. So uh, it was really interesting. I got a chance to watch it with mom a while ago. 
uh, and having her talk about like what she remembered from being because she was like Sally Draper's age. Well, cool. yeah, at the beginning of the show, like in the 60s. So like seeing it from her perspective, what she remembered from her mom uh, working in these kind of jobs. I think grandma was a secretary. I know grandma Joan was a secretary and like imagining what they were having to go through <laughs> in these environments. Like it wasn't necessarily on Madison Avenue, but it's yeah. telling of the times. Right. And uh, absolutely. It's fascinating to hear how accurate they got it. And uh, yeah, really understanding this time that we've all heard about as this like glory days of like the bootstrap era, being able to pull yourself up off the streets and do anything uh, that we all yearn for <laughs> now. <laughs> Uh, it's it's engrossing and fascinating. And that's not even looking at the characters um, that ended up being incredible, such as our hero, Don Draper, or should we say anti-hero? I have a... You said a lot of things, but I have a point that I wanted to make, and that's that they are ridiculously... Uh, obser- I, I, when I said attention to detail, I was thinking about the writing and how this show never does a bad retcon and like had a very complete and detailed picture of these characters' general general arcs and relationships to one another from almost start to finish. But the the literal details on the screen of like 1960s dress wear, uh, authentic background spaces. First of all, this show never feels like a set to me, like no. a lot of shows do, mm-hmm. and it feels. The space is so consistent. Like, I have the map of both offices Ooh. and, like, all of the characters' homes in my head. And they're, like, very real. They're, yeah. they're physical spaces. But they're all authentically 1950s and 60s materials, all the clothes. Uh, and that is so expensive to do <laughs> for movies and TV. Like, Mindhunter was so successful. And everybody loved it, and it was critically acclaimed. And they're like, we just can't do another season. It's just way too much money to put everybody in suits from the 70s. Right. Yeah. Like, we have to get weird Cadillacs. Like, it's so much money. It's hard. It's really And that hard. blows my mind. Yeah. Attention to detail is crucial. Like, you can look at movies like Back to the Future, and, like, they do a pretty good job. But, like, also, I, I don't think they can hold a candle to something like this. Like... For seven seasons, putting this together mm. yeah. uh, is ground. And the way that it changes, like the, the authentic way that it's like, this is 1959, and now this is like 1963, and this shit is 1970. Like, it's beautiful. It's so noticeable. It's so Yeah, you can really like, track alive. trends through as uh, the show goes on, like how long characters' hair gets or what kind yeah. of like suit cut they're wearing or even the colors that apply. Like Roger, like America skirts. is the main character. Yeah. <laughs> the Sex in the City bit. The sex in the City <laughs> joke for you. <laughs> well, uh, the other main character, Don Draper, is uh, who will be <laughs> who will be discussing today. And uh, in a short description, he could be uh, Don Draper. That is like the ideal American man in 1960. This huge, handsome man with from what I hear, has massive dong, who's, like, uh, incredibly... Is that part of it? It is. I mean, the assumption. The the part of it is that he's an incredibly handsome man, and I think there's a lot going through We'll Watch Don do where if he was anyone else, like, people would have called him on his shit a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. He is an alpha male, for the lack of a better term. Like, he's really 
I'm sure there are better terms. I just chose that. You one. could say confident uh, and successful, and yeah. not you know caring more about the image of who he is than other people's feelings at times. That's and true. then uh, in season six, Cutler says something like, "We used to be so intimidated by you. What was that man up to? Yeah, but you're just like a football player in a series, <laughs> like a drunk bully." <laughs> yeah. And again, later, uh, one of the little nerdlinger writers calls him on it. He says, "You don't have hell, character. yeah, Mathis. You're just handsome." Yeah, and like it rocks Don's world. <laughs> it's a really it interesting question that like is common in society of like. Well, beautiful people get away with a lot, but I mean, there are studies based on this that like children think that handsome and beautiful people are nicer mm, and more yeah. successful and smarter. Like there is a lot going for you that you don't realize is happening unless you take away the beauty for a minute. Yeah, like, people change how they react to you because they want you to like them. Yeah, the baseline like evolutionary level of attraction is like a big advantage in your assessment of a person because of course it would be and it takes like a lot of willful bias to assume that it would be otherwise and then there are people in this universe that are going through the same struggles like peggy is a great i don't know if she's a foil necessarily but like another a, a character in the show that kind of shows how beauty and uh power that comes from being this like handsome man gets you really far even if you have the same talents and abilities, like she came from a similar background of like not incredibly rich, uh, had a terrible secret and uh, really wanted to go far in her career. But because she wasn't a handsome white man uh, with a mysterious background, she couldn't get far fast. She had to really grind and look for opportunities where she could, because I think you could parallel their careers very directly in that they both have an incredible insight into like the human psyche and what makes people want to buy things. And so, yeah, let's talk about that because I don't know if we have to assume that people do or don't have like a baseline understanding of the entire series. Like <laughs> Dawn and other characters, but like, especially Dawn is like a character about contradictions. Like mm. watching the show from season one, you see one thing and you have your base assumption and you see other people have that assumption, other characters, Mm -hmm. And then you're suddenly shown information that conflicts with everything you thought right. that makes you feel usually like repulsed or sad. Mm -hmm. um, like the first episode, I think, is fucking brilliant. I think the pilot <laughs> has a lot of diff like things that were improved upon in the little filmmaking aspects. But like, yeah, the pilot is sick. No, it's great. It's so good. In the pilot, we see him as like a guy who has this major problem of like trying to solve why people won't smoke cigarettes or how to keep pushing people to smoke cigarettes, even though like doctors are now disavowing their previous, like I will smoke cigarettes still. <laughs> even if maybe I'll die, maybe I won't, who knows? Uh, and uh, he's like racking his head and we see him like having uh, a relationship with this like interesting New York artist who's like in the, what what do they call it by the park or like the village uh, in the village yeah uh we see him like schmoozing with all of these executives in his suit and he's just like a powerful man who's easily able to say like no that's stupid about like data that he's given on this like <laughs> yeah. he's able to reject things willy-nilly because he has this he has power. power uh we see a whole bunch of underlings who just have like this like cloying respect mm -hmm. and awe for him. They're like trailing in his wake. Yeah, they want to be like him when they grow up. 
They're like yeah. the junior executives that sort of parallel, or yeah, they run along the whole show, and like watching them develop in comparison and contrast to Dawn and mm-hmm. his power, <laughs> like social and advertising, is fascinating. And we also see in that episode him like straight up dismissing a powerful Jewish woman on the basis that probably she's a woman and didn't agree with him. And he's allowed 100%. to just walk out of the room like an asshole and people still have to work with him. <laughs> yeah. That's like, more that big boomer energy. He's too handsome and cool that no one's going to be like, wow, he's really a diva, huh? And she's still willing to work with him. Mm-hmm. If you're handsome enough, a tantrum isn't a tantrum. It's like a power move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's like, wow, I wish I could have done that. <laughs> and then eventually he gets this incredible idea in the meeting that he's supposed to already have the idea and pitch for. And everyone Whoa. still celebrates him because he eventually did it. And that's good enough, apparently, because, like, it's incredible to watch his creative genius. And then he goes home after flirting with, like, a bunch of women to his wife and children who've just been there yeah. the whole time. And it's like, it's a surprise because we've seen him with a, like a mistress or we don't know who she is, but they're, you know, having you assume girlfriend. Yeah. And he's flirting with the, the powerful businesswoman who he already blew off really intensely. Like he's allowed to be uh, like available to these women and then go home and still have it all. Like <laughs> it's, he's it, a hot it's mess. Really, yeah. Yeah. So like the whole the whole episode is in Midtown Manhattan in 1959. And like we're seeing all of the stuff that we just described. And then it ends. It feels like it's been a triumphant moment for Don. And we're like wrapping up. And then he pulls out to this like suburban little house. Yeah. There's like a musical mystery as we watch him on the train. Like, where's he going? Yeah. What's he doing where's he over going? here? Yeah. And he walks into a house and like he his wife, his beautiful fucking wife is there and his children are asleep. And it ends with this like insane tableau of uh, the sleeping children. And Don like has his hands on each of them and just sort of looks like vaguely distant. And yeah. his beautiful wife stands in this like illuminated doorway. Mm-hmm. And we're like, what the fuck? They have so many beautiful Renaissance painting shots. Like it looks like a greeting card from 1955. <laughs> That's Oh, God, the show does it so well. Like, right. And yeah. not to tip it all too early, but this contrast between like the image of a perfect life and what Dawn's feeling is kind of the biggest thing in the show. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like because well, we that get dichotomy. Into, exactly. We get into the alienation he feels and the difference of like how his identity is centered around being successful and powerful at work. He has all these things that he's supposedly like supporting by having a huge job in the first place. But he doesn't feel like he's a part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the show is like all about, you know, going after all of the bullshit, nostalgic narratives for America and for this period and blah, 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 for the patriarchy, for all of that stuff. And so it's constantly hitting you with these sharp contrasts. And most of them are embodied in Dawn. But like, it's hard for me not to talk about this show as anything but like a like a fuck you to the American dream narrative and yep. a critique, like a, a a straightforward and reasonable critique of capitalism and the capitalist lifestyle. And masculinity too. Uh, oh, like, yeah. Like, yeah, and how and how they are all wound up together. Yeah, and having the ensemble cast is so amazing because it's like we're watching the trajectory of the show is just this perfectly shot arrow 
but every other character is standing in a line. So we get all these like slightly different angles on a similar conflict. Mm. Arrow mm. metaphors. Maybe they're shooting at the story homunculus. He's getting closer. <laughs> <laughs> we got to take him down. <laughs> <laughs> Always back to Elden Ring. Yeah. Always back. You haven't even seen those big troll boys yet. Yeah. Oh, Not man. yet. Oh, man. Um, but that it's also helpful for that, that like, American mythology gives us so many moments in the 1960s that are seen as like, you know, these defining moments that are shared experiences. Like everyone remembers where they were when JFK was shot or Martin Luther King Jr. or the moon landing. Yeah. Like those, those are some of the big crisis. hallmark ones. Yeah. yeah they, they, they use them a lot. The uh, presidential elections, which Sterling Cooper are like involved in managing the campaign yeah. of Nixon at one point. Yeah. Um, so the and all of the viewers, even really young kids who haven't paid attention in social studies, like know about JFK was assassinated or the Vietnam War. Yeah. Yeah. So but but uh, my I, I, I can't remember if I actually put the point on it, but my point was it's very useful having shared experiences that potent for this big, big, diverse cast to you know, fold around. Mm -hmm. um, it does a lot of the work in catching up the viewers with the emotional language as well as like the plot language or, or, or yeah. beats going on. And it reinforces like the main themes and premise of the story, which is like yeah. we are uh, like affecting and creating the narrative people see in like the world or like how, or, like through advertising specifically. Like, yes. Holy fuck. Yeah. It's folding in on itself. Interesting part of Don Draper is like he is uh, we can get into the anti-hero stuff in a bit, but basically like he is a very unhappy man who doesn't in a lot of ways like himself, even though he feels compelled to be this version that he really wants to be. And at the same time, he's creating this narrative for the entire world or at least America of what mm. you should be, because advertising is telling you you are wrong. Here's how you fix it. All of yeah. the time. And it's with this product. Happiness is just another moment before more happiness. Yeah, it's uh, in the first episode. <laughs> he talks about how advertising is all about happiness and, like, feeling like that. Uh, or, like, you're a part of it. Which is, yeah. And as we learn, it's so perfect because as we learn more about Don Draper, we see that this is a man who is desperate to feel happy because mm -hmm. of a very troubled life and a lot of trauma and a lot of outside pressure to be this way. Yeah, imposter um, syndrome. And, yeah, which is all very but, literal I mean, when you learn the details of the yeah. character. But And it's it's just so brilliant to do it that way, to have this literal element of, like, who is this man? Like, what is what is a Don Draper Dude. amid the story, like, critiquing this period and capitalism and the, the like, you know, the lie. Uh, and that's that one of the hippies said that to him. You created the lie. You invented the lie. And he's like, "Yeah, I sleep on a bed of money." And <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. But it's clear that even though it does satisfy his creative urge in some way, that like part of it is hurting him because he's yeah. also building himself into this prison of this identity, and it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. No, and the show tells you about it. Season four, I think, with Dr. Faye. She says it comes down to what I want versus what's expected of me. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, like, Dawn's like, that's dumb. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to go marry a secretary. 
Yeah. <laughs> no one can figure me out. Exactly, right? <laughs> no one wants to think they're a type is another thing she tells him. Like, <laughs> yeah. it all speaks to this impediment Don has with, like, feeling connected to his actual life. He is, a uh, like, a spectator, right? He's just sort of going along not understanding why he doesn't feel connected. And yeah. then, before that, the, like kindly wizard character that is Anna Draper does his tarot car reading and tells him the only thing that's keeping you from being happy is the belief that you are alone. Yeah. And that's well, like the season seven finale. That's why he hugs the VeggieTales man. <laughs> yeah, the VeggieTales man. Because he's in the fridge. Yeah, he has the story about yeah. being like a sad alone <laughs> in the fridge and no one gets it or wants to see him. Yeah, sorry. That's I've a deeper that Mad Men meme. Clip a lot, and I don't know if we want to save the ending for the end, but I yeah. think coming to that realization that, like, even though he has pushed everyone in his life away from him, that he still has a chance to have love, and that there are people in his life that he could really connect with, I think is a huge realization for a lot of men, especially coming out of this era. Because I don't know, I don't know, men. Not allowed to talk well about feelings. But from what I understand from the outsider perspective and like honestly watching 8,000 million billion videos of men for the last forever, uh, because that's all people used to make, (laughs) (laughs) uh, it seems like there are limitations into what you can really discuss freely with your friends and with your family and that your wife ends up either becoming your therapist or becoming your enemy because you can't fully be honest with people. And express yeah. yourself in a lot of ways. And the show really addresses masculinity in that way uh, directly. Speaking to that part there, uh, I just wanted to say, like, now it's so heartbreaking to watch uh, the early seasons in particular. Because, yeah. like, Betty is also in this traditional role. And, yeah, like, right. her only window to, like, the adult world is Dawn. And he just, like, doesn't want to engage with her at all. Yeah, he sees her, like, five hours a week. Yeah. He infantilizes her so hard, even though she was a really brilliant woman before they met. I mean, she freaking knows Italian. Yeah, they're not partners in anything. She is, like, the domestic, like, window for him to look at that part of his life and be like, you know, I don't feel good here. I feel better at work. (laughs) So he, like, lives very hard. (laughs) Like, gets drunk. Like, all his friends are work friends. It's wild. Well, and again, like the baseline, it is it is directly coming at this the very idea of like masculinity being attached to, you know, the wage economy. That's right. Um, at the beginning of the show, Don is very well off, but he's not super wealthy, but they're still like extremely well off. Um, but either way, it's like, yeah, your, your role as provider means not being around your family. Like being with your family is lame, bro. Like people are explicitly saying it. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, no one takes sick days. Like, they're expected to work through all these holidays because, like, your real-life priorities aren't... Like, they don't matter in the business world. Pete's daughter being born during a period of, like, <laughs> the company <gasps> changing over. Like, oh. And everyone's just like, oh, congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you lost the account. Yeah. There's this very, po- like, very active visual and social language that the characters have where it's like... We know what the passwords that we have to say, like, I love my family, um, or like, family's what really matters. Yeah. But we also all understand that we will fuck any woman we can at any time. Mm-hmm. And also, anything to do with my family is lame as hell. Lame, boring baby stuff. 
boo women. Boo. To the point where I will buy like a second home. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. Just not be around them. And be in an apartment in Manhattan at all times until like there's a birthday party for my child. Apparently, yeah. And even then, I'm gonna drive off with the cake and just never come home until I find a dog <laughs> out of nowhere. That birthday party makes me oh, it's so, so good. upset. Horrific. Yeah. Because okay. First of all, he clearly loves his daughter, but he's bad at it. I think yeah. that's interesting because, like, you can be a dad and you can provide well, but you're never there and you show so little interest in her, like, pathetically low interest. And yet you're her favorite person because yeah. you're special and you have to do so little to get so far with them. Uh and in that episode, it's her birthday party. She's thrilled that he's there. Like, that's pretty clear. Yeah, that he's and just shown he, up. And Betty's, like, doing all of the work for this, even brought her friend over to put it together and is making sure it's the perfect party. And then he fucks off to get the cake for, like, hours. He just doesn't come back until the party's well over. Because I think at one point he watches a, a couple... That are clearly deeply in love yeah. still. I was gonna oh. say that. He comes to this party just to frown at the one couple who actually like each other. Right. Yeah. He's like, fuck that shit. Betty says, get the camera, and that's a dangerous thing to do to Don because now he's looking at it like <laughs> media and not the life. He's like, I'm already so separated, I don't feel anything. <laughs> so but I can capture, you know, emotions and get them to convey real love through media not real and life. like they're Dang. complimenting each other this couple clearly likes each other a lot and they're not the yeah, hottie they... bodies necessarily but they're so happy they're the only couple that doesn't laugh at the joke about like assaulting your wife or your wife yeah. dying right <laughs> my wife those are those are really commonly deployed in the show like by doctors or random characters or just like in the rhythm of glad handing wealthy people that is their job um, just like casual, like my joke about wife dying, yeah. joke about I'd rather be golfing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which like boomer humor. I get it. Like, all right, go but on. But it takes the context of seeing it in this show to be like, oh my God, is that problematic? <laughs> like for some people. Like it's true. Because they heard it their whole life. Destroying Don over <laughs> the course of it. Yeah. You still <laughs> see it on Facebook. Like my wife won't stop talking. I guess I have to get like. Yeah. Uh, a gun. Well, yeah. Wife wants me to <laughs> stop playing Elden Ring. Guess I'm divorced. Yeah. Yeah. Guess I'm maidenless. <laughs> so I think it's interesting that uh, several times Don talks about like not understanding love. And that seems to be a major theme for him. It's like he comes up to it and people clearly love him, but he has no way of accessing it or understanding yeah. it. And that could come from like, Earlier in the show, they talk about and show some examples of his shit dad. Yeah. He's a shit dad who, like, also cheated on his wife a bunch because he's not even his, like, stepmom's kid. He's a child of a prostitute who died while having him. Don is. Yeah. That is. Spoiler uh, audience. The way this show, like, slowly doles out backstory for Dawn is incredible, and it is such a journey to go on that is, like, shocking and illuminating as it happens. Treat yourself. Go watch all yeah. of it right now. We'll wait. Treat yourself. Uh, He's stolen identity is the important yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. He comes out of nowhere as this, like, immaculate, perfect businessman. Oh, what's he thinking? He's so mysterious. And we cut back to him in like a farm in Pennsylvania in the depression, having nothing like 
his best role model is a transient hobo that teaches him the hobo code and tells him like, hey man, you could just run away from your problems. I did it. It's great. And like, (laughs) again, because this is probably the only man that ever talked to him instead of just like hitting him or yelling at him. He really takes that to heart and doesn't shake it. There are a couple times in the show too, where Don is almost exposed as a fraud, as an imposter. Cooper, Bert Cooper uh, has this revealed to him by Pete. And then they have that incredible dialogue of uh, a man is whoever is in the room. And yeah. Don Draper is in this room. Would you say I know something about you? Yeah. <laughs> I fucking love it. He's uh, he's sort of this like top of the pyramid patriarch slash priest of capitalism. Yeah. yeah. Like high priest of capitalism. <laughs> no, and he really is. Yeah. He uh, he's sort of untouchable in the day to day moment to moment relationships of like all the lesser executives. But he will descend from the peak to like dole out sage wisdom in the form of Ayn Rand yeah. to Don <laughs> Draper as he's like, listen. Now you've identified that you're better than most people. It's time to start exploiting them for money because that's what we do. You really get your boot Uh, on those necks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And Don, uh, again, like he is intelligent enough that we can see he's like, I don't know if I agree with this, but he also knows what's expected of him, feels the draw to power and like wants to belong. And so like is always complying and enforcing this like, like on Peggy and the other writers and his family you know, the requirements of a traditional capitalist view. So like the good character thing he says to Mathis and the way he behaves. But you can always tell that he, there's a part of him that yearns to be artistic and radical and he understands the unfairness of some of these things. And he he wants Um, to be perceived a certain way. Like not only does he want to, you know, be the top of his game and like the most powerful advertiser, but... Like, he he believes in his own brand, right? Like, he has built up this thing, and I think because he has that weird alienation and separation, he, it makes him really good at, you know, shaping other people's expectations around this character he's building up. Totally. And he, he's constantly, especially in the later seasons, trying to play both sides. Like, show he wants the approval of artistic types, but he wants the benefits of being, like, a, a an oligarch <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, he he understands and is cynical about advertising sometimes. And then mm-hmm. he is really defensive of art critiquing advertising at other times. Because oh. he's like, but damn me. Like, I'm cool. I'm smart. But it's also yeah, like, so- I am the only one that can mess with idiots this way. <laughs> like, they are really wrapped around my finger. I think this transitions really well into, like, his relationship to Peggy. Because, like, to keep the, like, mythical language going, like, he becomes, he plucks her from obscurity, essentially sees she has this spark of talent and becomes her mentor. And, like, throughout the rest of the show, pretty much only respects her opinion or, like, other people lesser to different extents. Uh, Yeah. But, like, no one else gets why this is important the way he does. They they share a trauma bond, right? Like, is that kind of part of it? This, like, horrible secret that... If they were in a different time, they could share, but they they have to keep it concealed in order to live their lives. And because of that, he thinks that there is something valuable in that, which by all means, maybe there is like, I, I don't know, <laughs> thankfully. But uh, yeah, do you think part of his power comes from his like understanding of his like 
heartbreak or like pain Maybe. or trauma. Yeah. Yeah, even if he wouldn't put a pin on it or like put a name to it, he understands that. Because before the the end of season one and you know sharing the secret with Peggy, he's not actually really giving a fuck about Peggy. He's noticed that she can do a thing, but most of her advancement is like to spite Pete. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like he he doesn't really give a fuck. But he, and which isn't to say he doesn't think she's talented, but it's just I don't think it would have been enough for Don to like change a life and like have a mentee no without she has the to things that go down succeed a lot for him to notice yeah. the same way like that moment they're workshopping the mohawk airlines thing it, it, yeah. that's like i think the first real mentory moment where he's getting peggy to think about like uh, shape this around what you want Right. Un- yeah, on the spot. Right? And I think that's the thing we could say about, like, you know, trauma benefiting him is he understands that, like, he is wanting for things and has found a way to really, like, use that or make people think the way he does. Yeah. And, and I think that as the show goes on, it also this is maybe a slight digression, but I love it. Like it's it's his power to like dazzle people. And he thinks that's because he's a creative mind. And he is. But he figures out that, like, maybe more of it is being in the room and being who he is and, yeah. the, like, the way that he can deliver his ideas more than just his yeah, ideas. Yeah, and so many people present wanting to fuck him. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's a slight digression, but it's, like, he he respects that, like, again, it is their power. It's Peggy and Don have the power in this heroic story, and, like... It's slightly different, and in the end, Peggy's is superior. I will I die so. on that hill. I will die on that hill. Yes, you should. Um, we will all die together. <laughs> Kill me on this hill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I may interject, I have a thought that just came to me, and now let me know if this is off the chain, too far off the chain. Uh, but, like, this idea Sounds of sick. Don and Peggy both had to make a humongous choice in their life of... I could continue to live my life in this direction. This is where I want to go. Or I could uh, stay where I am and face the consequences of my actions in a different way. And because they made that choice, that they are have their eyes open to the possibility of something that they haven't seen yet. Peggy has that line when she's talking to that terrible blind date she goes on of like, the reason people in Manhattan are better is because they want something they haven't seen yet. And this thought of like something new or, uh, you know, exploring potential wasn't really the consensus at the time that there was this idea of like conformity or like this ideal that people were working towards. And then you kind of use the, the, the roll of the dice that you were given and you kind of try and figure it out, but they have made a humongous leap in a different direction. And they know that they can actually change their lives in a magnificent way that maybe opens up perception to. Oh, sure. I I was just going to jump in and say, it's the, uh, the lesson he learned from the hobo as a child of like, Mm. you can like, what's at home. You can leave everything behind and be whoever you want to be the next day. He helps Peggy through her trauma that we haven't named yet by saying, like, this didn't happen. You can live like that. It will shock you how much this didn't happen, right? Yeah. And it's, like, not healthy advice, but it's the way he's been able to, like, like you said, take the reins and really shape his life into what he wants it to be by intentionally disregarding what came before. 
I was going to say, like, this is the weird magic that charisma has, right? Like, you (laughs) are affecting reality by people believing what you're saying. So even if the content isn't right or doesn't really suit the, like, reality of a situation, it becomes that when they believe you. You've changed a mind. Mm. (laughs) And that's, oh. Yeah. This is Before we get off it, it's also representative of this, this overarching, I think, theme statement, which is like, the the danger and the lack of reality in this mindset of like raw appetite like i will get what i want like mm. i can want whatever i can imagine and i can do whatever i want to get it like that is present in the ethos of don draper and in that advice to peggy and i'm not saying it's that simple and one is more sympathetic than the other but like you know yeah. like he pitches it like it's the 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 most actionable and natural path Hmm. but it's like in many ways it is defying like where your first emotional reasoning takes you and he's like do it yeah there's that whole like (laughs) past his prologue kind of idea like he's like no 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 i'm in advertising i will tell you exactly what to think about me like through what i choose to show you i will change the conversation yeah that's all about the narrative Mm-hmm. It's that's fascinating. I oh gosh. This is what I want you to do is the philosophy of it because again, I want There's wanna, so much. Yeah, the so mythic language of it all is really cool. And I think it always exists in this space, sorry, of dichotomies where like it it gives you these characters who say one thing and do another. Mm. And that, you know, if you don't think about it, you're like what the fuck? But it's like you are watching in real time the opposite pulls that society is exerting on a person. Yeah. yeah. And that's extremely authentic as well as being perfect for this show that's like very much about two sides of one coin. A really great... Like a lot of yeah. different coins. Oh my God, so many coins. Uh, another really great like <laughs> foil or comparison is Joan Harris, who is played uh, by Christina Hendricks. And she arguably, is like... yeah. The, the most beautiful dog. woman in the world, but is like also like so competent. Right. Like she can do anything. She's a fixer. Any problem comes up. She has like a practical, reasonable and efficient answer to it. She's got and moxie. Like, yeah, well, yeah. And the way the world treats them so differently, like reinforces the like setting and theme of like, no, no, she's a woman in the 60s. So why would yeah. we listen to anything the fuck she says, regardless of the but fact she she's always right? she manipulates the system to always right. have her foot in a door. She always knows how to get someone one upped, like uh, in a situation where that shitty art kid is being an asshole and draws that terrible cartoon of her blowing Lane Price. Right. Like she knows that all she has to do is have a dinner with someone from the ham company that they're creating work for, and he she can get him fired in an instant if she wanted to. But she knows how the system works. Yeah, she's not allowed to be the face of a powerful person. She has to mani- like manipulate a masculine narrative or like exactly. a set of circumstances yeah she's a puppeteer in a lot of ways if she wants to be but also she's just trying to live her life yeah and no and then when peggy uh like their paths diverge as peggy stops being a secretary and becomes a writer and like shows that like ambition and what her goals were you see joan have this moment of like oh yeah i've been working really hard here and my goal was supposed to be marrying a handsome doctor but this is not fulfilling Peggy's got her own office, asshole. and I'm, I'm still yeah. out here. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm tangentializing, but there's a lot of really good character arcs, and how they interweave is spectacular. It all comes back to Dawn because 
that's, I mean, the main character, it's his life that we're supposed to be following, but like, it's fascinating to see everyone trying to get to this one goal, seemingly, of like happy suburban family life and all failing in different ways because it's seemingly impossible <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> without at least like some degree of honesty or empathy. Uh, I think it's time we maybe dish about antiheroes. Yeah. I want to hear like, what's your definition for it? Because I think there's been a lot of interesting characters that like we just like despite their flaws yeah. and every character is flawed. So what makes an antihero as opposed to a hero that is flawed? That's fascinating. I think I'm still very unclear on the subject. I thought I knew. Yeah, no, I'm asking. I don't fucking know. I thought it was the Clint Eastwood cowboy of like, you know, you're doing things for the greater good, but by your own terms and like you're getting to the end point. And I don't think Don could be argued to be doing that because I don't think he is ever doing anything for the greater good, but he is the main character of the show. And he also is vulnerable and weak on camera in ways that, like, these traditional antiheroes weren't. Like, you look at a hero, it's someone doing things for the greater good, who, who's brave, you know, following the archetypes that society dictates are important at the time. And even characters like Odysseus didn't really fit that. Like, he fails spectacularly often. <laughs> oh, all the time. Yeah. And I think he could but be... But he did fit his Times narrative uh, or, like, conception of what a hero was. Yes. And I think by today's he wasn't, standards... He's an anti-hero by today's standards, exactly. I guess. But, like, that's not really genuine. He is the hero of his story. Yes. So I think by today's standard, because of how many, like, we put higher value on, like, maybe the men in his crew that he let die constantly uh, by having a huge ego and, like, constantly making things about him uh, when he could have just gone home, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we have a lot more moral hangups on what we think a hero is now. Like exactly. there is, yeah, we exactly. expect a degree of selflessness, but there's, we're sort of equivocating like a heroic person exactly. versus a protagonist, right? Yes. That's a very good point. I, I'm just saying, I think there's not as much benefit in going to a story from a very different set of circumstances context mm. and saying like, yeah, that's an anti-hero. Like I, okay. he's still a hero. Well, like, let's, he's still just fair enough. So Don Draper fits in that kind of bucket. Same with like similar to Tony Soprano, similar to Walt Whitman uh, that like, yeah, Don is an anti-hero. I'm not yes. saying that. Okay. Yeah. Odysseus classic hero. So, uh, in that sense, like Don has, uh, is mostly motivated by self-interest, but is constantly torn and, is moving through life in uh, very selfish ways, but has like this uh, Matthew Weiner. I can't believe it's not Weiner. Uh, Matthew Weiner says like a situational morality, which I thought was really interesting because he clearly does want to do things that are good for the people yeah. around him, but also is torn in this like uh, terrible cycle of, you know, self-destruction uh, that, you know, permeates to the people around him. So it's like a gesture based thing where he's yeah. the, he, he, he is often aware of the moral thing to do like the, or the heroic thing to do what I want versus um, what's expected of me. Yes, exactly. So he will often show that awareness, but it's also not universal. There are times where it's absolutely ignorance causing him to hurt those around him. And then there are also are plenty of times where he is intentionally hurting those around <laughs> him. Um, Yep. Like, so, yeah. one instance, uh, Salvatore was the gay art director who was in the closet 
and on a business trip with Don, like he is, you know, caught in the act almost of like being gay. And Don, in uh, by today's standards, a very kind thing to do is to not mention it and let him live his life. So he kept him in the closet and brought nothing about it. But later on, when uh, the 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 son of the tobacco company owner yeah the most tries important account molest Sal he does nothing and lets him be fired instantly uh, doesn't out him personally but like you know I don't think that was the morally right thing to do in that situation of not help your friend in any way yeah and it's like it's sort of <laughs> left unclear if like sh- he didn't do anything about it and he could have, yeah. but the idea is that doing something about it would have entailed risk to the company. Mm-hmm. Right. He cuts people loose a few times. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Like there's, there's that, there's Lane, there's his brother that shows up that is like ready to bust his whole identity yeah, open. He fears. Brother is a very good example because there are so many ways out of that situation. Like if his brother truly loved him, which is absolutely the case, he could have been honest with him and found a way to circumvent, you know, being exposed to the government. Yeah, it's still be in each other's cats. lives. Yeah, had some family, and instead he decides to preserve himself uh, completely and cut off his one source of connection from his past. Yeah. Don's relationship to the past and the prospect of getting found out is like animalistic survival. Like, he thinks that he is, like, it becomes clear through his behavior and, like, the sweats and the panic attacks and, and the way he handles things like Adam. He is terrified. He thinks he is on the razor's edge of being found out. Um, and as he accrues more wealth, he, and, like, more success, like, it becomes even more acute. Because yeah. he feels like he's, yeah. Oh, what I love about it is, like, in those moments of crisis, he's like, I'm going to lose everything. My family, my business, like, my whole identity is in threat right now if someone knows that I used to be someone else. But, yeah. like, at other times when things are going well and no one's close to his secret, he will constantly endanger all the things in his life for, like, Absolutely. Like, you know, cheating on his wife in increasingly, like, egregious ways or, mm-hmm. you know, yelling at clients to prove he's a man and not do what's best for the business. Totally. You think about how it affects his love life. Like, I used to think that Faye Dunaway was the best partner for him, but now I realize that she was just kind of his first therapist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of like, you know, allowing him to open up a little bit more. And even though they weren't meant to be together and they didn't have that intense passion that him and Betty had at first and him and uh, Megan had, like, it was incredibly important for him to actually feel the the feeling of being himself. Yeah, he didn't internalize those lessons hard enough. Right. (laughs) Not hard enough, but they, he absolutely is in better shape for Megan than he was for his previous relationships. Mm -hmm. Thanks to. Oh, definitely. And I was wondering about that because we don't see Don falling in love with Betty, right? Like that's already established when the timeline kicks in. We do see him talking to Anna. Yeah. He says he's in love with her and he's very excited about the prospect of it, but we still just see the, like the idea. We don't have examples of their relationship working. Like, it's so weird that one episode where they're spending the day together as a family. Like, it's, it's bonkers, <laughs> and I don't understand the dynamic, and it's fun until it's not, and well, Bobby ruins it. they're both charming people. They're yeah. both smart, charming people. It makes perfect sense that these two hottie bobotties would, you know, be happy for a time together. And, like, 
be able to have a good life. But then they decide to never see each other ever again and stop respecting each other all the time. Like the cracks form because they don't have an actual foundation of like yeah. character. Like the couple at Sally's birthday that like hugs yeah. and are interested in each other. <laughs> right? Like they just have this expectation of what they should be doing. Right? And like it's so sad to watch Betty squash her whole identity into being this perfect mother in and wife in a relationship where like there's there's no give to that take <laughs> it is all a facade i think i got a little distracted because i still want to talk about anti-heroes and okay. i think don draper still fits that era one anti-hero and this isn't including like uh this is more of like the last 20 years of cinema and like television especially like Era one being Tony Soprano, Walter White, even Carrie Bradshaw, I would argue, because like we still like them and we keep going back and thinking that there are redeeming parts to these characters and we want them to change. And we're never quite sure if they will. Uh, My understanding, and I have not watched all of Sex in the City, was that Carrie Bradshaw was not intended to be an anti Well, she sure is. Oh, she, I thought she, she was just the flawless protagonist. I thought she was the Leonardo. Yeah, I read that take. I've read that take, especially a lot recently, but I think that's like a, you know, like a a, a critical take. Yeah. I don't think that they wrote Sex in the City like you should you should be critical of this and you should not trust Carrie. But I don't know. Looking at it now, I think I have a very different lens than like when the show came out. So very good point. Yeah, I guess we got to do an episode about it. No, we don't. I'm a Carrie. I'm a Miranda. (laughs) I'm Samantha. I have sex with Ooh, everybody. You know what we could uh, do, though, is an episode on, like, the four humors on, like, shows that are <laughs> divided that way, like Seinfeld. Like, you just want to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja And the Turtles. Ninja Turtles. They're the most important color-coordinated example of this. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Right? All right. Well, sure. File that yes. away. Of course Turtle we power. should. Next is Era 2 Antihero. So that's... Really what is this based on? This is based on some videos that I made. Pre and post 9-11. <laughs> maybe probably not because these are also post 9-11 oh, okay. uh, it was more you got the, the shows you've got here are all in like the golden age of TV or like the TV renaissance yeah. I can never remember what it's called and now we're looking at I think Era 2 what I found interesting was that the inclusion of more women characters in Era 2 and also the inclusion of uh, consequences I think it was really interesting to watch Bojack because I finally did that last year. It was incredible. And Bojack and Don Draper have some similarities. Obviously, it's a, it's so a comedy. Uh, I mean, like both horsemen, sure. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, it just in the sense of like they're self-destructing, but people gravitate towards them. They're incredibly charming and they are talented to an extent. Bojack, I think, arguably less than Don Draper, but uh, still seen as very important men. And uh, the way that they damage the people around them for Bojack, it actually comes to a satisfying conclusion and is also constantly a reminder in the show that you should not be like Bojack, that Bojack is not something to be admired. Well, uh, I would say Don Draper arguably is framed slightly differently in that he's captivating and we can't help but admire him. And okay, is Bojack. that is that the difference? Like that you shoot or shouldn't idealize someone, or like I think it's also in the show itself how fiercely they tried to cement the fact that this is not good, and the actions that they're doing to the people around them are terrible. And I think portrayal can still be critical without literally having dialogue saying, 
I'm bad and I'm no one should want to be like me, which Bojack does all the time. And Bojack is like a very writer's show mm -hmm. where they just do literally whatever they want all the time. Like and, and there's never not someone talking. Yeah, uh, because it's like ugly as hell. <laughs> uh, and that's fine. And it's hilarious. And I love it. Um, but I, 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 you know, play it on me. I, I agree with everything you're saying, but I think Tony Soprano and Don Draper I think the intent is clear. I guess it's dangerous to talk about intent. I'm saying it's very easy to be like, wow, this guy's a monster. And like the fact that that is coupled with traditionally cool behavior, like murder or cigarettes. adultery yeah. and cigarettes, <laughs> uh, is just sort of like, you know, the, the, the middle ground, the subtlety that you need to make people actually question their own bias and behavior. Yeah, because, like, my example would be uh, Rick and Morty, where, like, you shouldn't want to be like Rick, but then we had all those people assaulting McDonald's employees. Like, totally. over Pickle. the head. Yeah. <laughs> it's right? just, exactly. And I think that there's only so much a show can do to, like, really insinuate that yeah. this is bad, and please don't bring this into real life. But at the same time, I think that Era 2, uh, we could look at Fleabag, we could look at um, a, a lot of the, like, uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Like, I think it's hitting the audience over the head <laughs> with this yeah, time it, it's, it's And showing like a actual consequences, because in, in Mad Men, yeah, Don gets divorced, but he still has a lot of success and in the end, he writes the best commercial known to man. So, like, yeah. he gets everything he wants. And in, in, uh, in, with Walter White, he dies, which is what was going to happen anyway. He was always going yeah. to die. Uh, uh, Tony Soprano, we have no idea what happens, but we know it's going to keep going forever. Don't stop. Like, that's the last Yeah, Tony one. has lots of victories. Like, he... Lots. It doesn't matter how he ends up, just like it doesn't matter that Walter dies. Like, he is successful. Yeah. He achieves his goals. Um, which are, like, about renown and a bunch of money for your family. <laughs> for Bojack, he ends up in jail for a small time, like, really looking at himself and, like, finally taking steps towards being a better person. We don't really see that with Mad Men. We see the, yeah, I, the I initial agree. start. I, yeah, I think you could interpret the ending that way. Like, we don't have to put too fine a point on it, but I really like yeah. the ambiguity of, like, how much has he found, like, peace... Versus how much has yeah. he just found a way that. to market peace? Yeah. 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 He's, he's finding ways to, like, be happy with himself, but it's not salvation. And he absolutely is going to keep exploiting, <laughs> like, the entire world. He's the, the entire like, world. Uh, he's the fucking <laughs> pinnacle of white man. He can only fail up. Like, his greatest conflict <laughs> <laughs> crisis brings his greatest success. Yeah. Exactly. And I think the interesting thing of this era, too, thought... Like I, I have been watching The Good Place again, and this we never defined that. By the post way, post nine eleven. Well, I don't. Is know. that actually what it is? I don't, I don't think that is. No, what it is. I don't think there is. I think there are two di different subsects of antihero. That's all I can say. Maybe it's not an era one versus era two. It's just two. No, then it's like yeah, left no, or right. I'm just saying. Yeah. Did did we want to say like era one is this and era two is this? I can't. We haven't defined I can't those define things. it. I can't. I don't have. Well, I don't. Have but it. it's not helpful to the listener to say it. Well, is my point. Delete it all, I guess. <laughs> I, uh, I Sarah has divided Era 1 into the idea being that Era 1 is like I early 2000s early with 2000s. people like Tony Soprano, Walter White, uh, maybe Carrie Bradshaw, and Don Draper. Probably Deadpool. Versus this like... like that's I so much later. Okay. Yeah, I, I well, think that's... Comics have been going again, on for 
the last 20 years. We're talking about TV, though. Okay, fine. Uh, uh, all right. Listen, it's all because of Batman Begins. Oh Christopher Nolan once again ruined everything, <laughs> and he went and made Batman like a cool fucking Navy SEAL or something. And, like... That everyone was like, yeah, anti-heroes, brooding people. Yeah, it's just like we wanted mean people, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And so that earlier is what Sarah has marked as era one, whereas era two is like the post-2010 stuff with all this metatextual level and, as we've discussed, like the self-awareness and and the... uh, the more active and engaged literal critique of this behavior. And I, I could see that being useful as like, as we have, you know, being saturated with really like dense content where there is a lot to dive into. We do become more sophisticated. We want to see flaws because that, you know, feels like it connects to us better because that's realistic. It, no one is a perfect yeah. Superman all the time. So yeah, give us nuance. Now we're, we're hungry. for yeah. it. We're just sort of looking for that in our heroes now. I think, yeah, I don't know about anti-anything. to fly. The trick is to not use any consonants. But that is the thing, right? Like, this, it feels super dramatic when you're, like, 14, but it's like, whoa, Superman has feelings. Like, I'm going to... This was literally my experience with this song and everything. So I feel like you're putting me on blast here a little. (laughs) No, no, I'm sure I'm putting myself on blast too. I think it's very authentic, especially at like an earlier age for understanding complexity. Like, oh, complexity exists. Like, (laughs) but then it got mixed with like, oh, a character could have an inner life. Wow, guitar and grunge, and we got the three doors down kryptonite. That's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm that's a... like a butt boy 12-year-old Superman. Yeah. And sad Superman is like a butt boy 14-year-old. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I would like to talk about, um, I don't think this is like the most like highest level of writing show, but I think a good place is really interesting for looking at, because I think you could argue that Eleanor is an anti-hero. Like she starts off with pretty nefarious uh, intentions of like faking it in heaven. Yeah, she's a villain protagonist. Anti-heroes now means nothing to me anymore. I don't understand it. I guess, all right. Never mind. Well, because I wanted to make this point. Like, it seems to be a swinging pendulum, as many things are when you're talking about pop culture. Where, like, we have, you know, ideal heroes and movies about ideals. And then we feel... I don't know, something like 9-11 happens or a recession happens, and we sort of start to feel like we want movies to represent the complexities and the reality, Mm -hmm. and then we get sick of that, and it swings back the other way, and we want Marvel heroes like fighting the Taliban or whatever. It's a moving target, yeah, and it is just about being counter culture to the expectations of that moment. So I think that's why delineating time is difficult. Very difficult. And but that's the fascinating part. And that's why stuff like the videos that Sarah found exist, because they tend to stick with people when they when you're in the middle of one at your, you know, the the age that's really foundational for your understanding of narratives and stories. Mm. Um, so the the part of the pendulum that's active when you're like 15 or whatever tends to have an effect on you and your generation many years into the future. And that doesn't mean that things remain static, but. It, it is going back mm-hmm. and forth, and we just, like, when we feel a pull too strong one way, we want to remember, like, well, ideals are, and aspirational things can also be interesting and multifaceted and important, and then it 
goes too hard and we find it unrelatable. And Dude, yeah. We resent. We need a, yeah. like a cultural constant to mark through this the whole way. And I think that we should develop like a Batman analysis specifically because that's oh. like one property that's happened so many times yeah. that you can really see like where we were at in culture, like in our Batman Returns phase versus the Christopher Batman. Nolan era versus like, oh, a little before that we had, you know, epitomized, idealized Kevin Conroy Batman who was like grim, but a uh, Superman in black, essentially, like kind of flawless. Now we got Robert well, Pattinson, and I, I, emo boy. Yeah, emo boy. I still haven't seen that yet, so I can't even build the Batman uh, ladder or whatever we're going to call it. Oh, I thought you were talking about Twilight. Yeah, no, I'm <laughs> talking about Batman. I, I, so that's great. But I like I think I always think like two thousands as like watered down like blues and blacks and gray colors and everything is like depressed and somber even when it's silly. Yep. And you know you could chalk it up to nine eleven or whatever else, but it's like a reaction to the colorful fun nineties and then the twenty tens are headed in the colorful idealistic direction with all this goddamn Marvel shit and yeah, like there's a bit more focus uh, on like imagination where we could get you know more fanciful generally. And all that was at least in part reaction to gritty anti-heroes. Yeah, like um, our relationship to like the distance we want between us and reality also fluctuates. Yeah. That's fucking cool. It is cool. Well. Thanks, Batman. There's a Batman line. Like, <laughs> who knows anything about Don? He could be Batman for all we know. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I do love that one. Yeah. Uh, that kind of summarizes him pretty well. Also. Yeah. And like one of the great things is that there are no easy answers. Like the same way that we, we, we talked about Breaking Bad enough, but like, you know, Walter White gets left in a strange place where it's like, he sort of is an idealist hero for like, you know, the home alone esque libertarian. <laughs> uh, but it's exactly, you know, yeah. he just <laughs> takes the law into his own hands. How is home exactly. alone the best vigilante <laughs> like, ex- example we have? That's wonderful. I watch that movie every year, and every year I'm a little more of a libertarian. <laughs> I'm like, I, sh- I should buy a gun. I must defend myself. I'm going to put micro machines <laughs> all over the floor. But, right? Like, he he's tragic. But he is sort of idealized, mm. right? Yep. Like, and it's he, his whole thing was like pride. He was like, I will not be disrespected, and it's like he he did it. And whereas Don is left in like a, it's not on the nose condemnation, and it's also not like, you know, you know, it, it's left in like a complex in between, which I think is appropriate for a show about like this ever flipping coin, like these dichotomies that seem to be an intense, impossible, irreconcilable conflict with one another, and he's just trying to ride both forever. I was going to say, to get mythic with it again, it's making me think of, like, ancient Greek heroes, where, like, we're supposed to be impressed by one aspect of their characters, and then, like, really see the flaws. Like, Achilles is the most perfect human that ever existed, but his hubris and vanity are his undoing. You don't want to be like that. Ooh, I don't even know that word. It's the fatal flaw. Oh, I thought it was a kind of cheese. <laughs> yeah, no, they... All right. Yeah, uh, so I think we've explored all of Mad Men. Congratulations. Now for our favorite I parts. think we did a... <laughs> yeah, we did a pretty good job of sticking to Don and just talking about the broad points with a few examples. Like, uh, I'm looking at my notes on the suitcase. 
like favorite yeah, episode. You know, it feels like we didn't say like Dawn's alcoholism in particular, which I think seasons the later seasons really get explicit with it. Oh yeah, um, and it leads to the awesome episodes where he's narrating from the point of view of his like journal about trying to get his yeah. life back on track, like. All these little character arcs within the bigger ones are so well executed. Holy shit. And it just the alcohol itself is like another romanticized concept that like I'm so grateful for the way the show chooses to acknowledge and also, you know, is is taking down in like a really methodical way. Like this show never misses an opportunity to have someone be smoking and or drinking. And it does just bombard you with the reality of like, whoa, this is just like all the time right so and like how could this yeah. not have a real effect on a person's day-to-day activities and behavior like no wonder they're you know acting so hard in like the name of their own pride or their like base sexy desires and again this is also the odyssey everyone is, like no one drinks water once <laughs> they're yeah. constantly getting the most potent wines <laughs> Well, and a bunch of the actors had a really hard time with it because just filming it was like you weren't drinking real alcohol and you weren't smoking real cigarettes, but you were doing both and you were just in an environment where over and over it was like romanticized and present that that would also have an effect on you, don't you think? Like just the way you think about a drink afterward. I am fine until I'm like watching a show like Mad Men and I'm like, oh, I should buy alcohol. (laughs) Advertising works. If people in a TV show order pizza, I'm like, I'm ordering pizza. I guess I have it's to over. Do that. Pizza house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Amazing. That's a very good point. I can't imagine what four scotches or rye would do to oh my a, God. a man on a daily basis. Like I, Dude. I was just on vacation. I count myself very lucky, and I, I think I had like about three drinks, maybe four drinks a day. That was a lot for me. I had a couple days where I did none. And whoa, I'm still feeling it. Like it's, this, yeah. I can't imagine living like that all yeah, the time. Yeah, no. Well, and he, they address like when uh, one of the few times that he tries to stop drinking, there's a scene where someone's like, "You can't just stop. You, you're, you're, you cannot go cold turkey. You have been drinking so much that your body is like shutting down, and people are noticing because you don't have alcohol in your system. Yeah. And like, that is very real. Yeah, like uh, It's yeah. gone so long, he doesn't even know what his mind or body are like in the absence of it. Hmm. Yeah. That's fucking wild. Yeah, like the real, the power and the terror of it, like the, the show, the, the Midge catch-up show in season, or episode in season four or five is also very harrowing. Uh, like oh right where he her relationship to heroin and and yeah. her husbands and like yeah if you know it's bad for you why don't you stop mm, yeah. it's heroin can't don't. stop yeah. yeah can't stop <sighs> so it's just like it just feels like no no myth of the american idyllic life in the 60s is safe and it's all thematically relevant and it's all it's never beating you over the head with something that feels like you know, simplistic or prudish or whatever. No, that's like, like a fucking even. terrifying, like, shark with its fin just out of the water running alongside the madman ship. Is they're all, like, talking <laughs> about, like, what makes people happy and how to tap into that and, like, how to feel things when they're, like, yeah. constantly trying to scratch this itch with their own substance issues, right? Yeah. Like, they can't yeah. feel the real things, but they can sure as hell feel this fourth old-fashioned. 
it kind of feels like life <laughs> in the 60s and maybe earlier was like a constant test that you had to go through. And for women, it was like, OK, act this way and be decent and uh, be around men and hope for the best and show them a good time, but not too good of a time. And then maybe you'll yeah. get rewarded with yeah. a husband and then children. And then you get to take care of them. And then here are all these new tests. And for men, it's like, OK, be drunk all the time and smoke all <laughs> the time and be around people all the time and still be charming and interesting and worthy of work and show up and pull up by your bootstraps. And all of this is on you all the time. And you have to support five other people <laughs> or <laughs> yeah. four other people. With and no emotional forever. support. Yeah. Do that forever. <laughs> Yeah, like don't question it. Like the, it's another cool thread that runs through the show is the idea of therapy as it was like this shameful and new thing, but how desperately yeah. everyone really needs to talk because holy fuck, no one's like talking about their feelings until it's like end of life threatening terrible circumstances like crisis moment. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Fuck. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And yeah, Don never got therapy the entire time until he went to that retreat. And that was the first time he ever, like, got a little bit, a little touch of it. And apparently that was enough. (laughs) (laughs) Or, yeah, enough for him to understand another way to, like, manipulate (laughs) people's desires. anti-heroes are hard and they may or may not exist and don draper is one (laughs) it's a state of mind man (laughs) i yeah i think it was worth doing this because the trend is ridiculously popular at least in the most like quote-unquote prestigious and influential tv shows and movies especially of this era era (laughs) (laughs) 1.5 on Uh, earth 2 yeah (laughs) <laughs> it's it's another so, it's a good tool for uh, sorry I was just gonna say it's a good tool for literacy too because like when it, marketing terms if someone throws the word antihero at you it might just mean like he says fuck <laughs> like, yeah. it, right so like it's uh, it's not a debunking but it is an analysis of it was hard for me I don't mean. really understand it still like I, I it's just a box you tick is your character cool but rude <laughs> give uh, me a break cool he's a he's the Raphael of the farm humors god damn it all right <laughs> I guess we're doing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles next yes <laughs> I can't wait for the next podcast I can't wait for Turtles podcast <laughs> Dan um. will do a Turtles podcast <laughs> this is uh, a turtle splinter show. is Paul Atreides <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Jesus. Jesus. I am Christ. not signing off on a Turtles podcast. No, I was just going for more Dan Brand. You get it. I know. <laughs> Drand. <laughs> the Drand is very good. That sounds like I just I just invented like a fantasy protagonist name. <laughs> yeah, you found my D&D character sheets. Get out of here. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us on talking about 
What I must say, again, is probably my favorite show of all time. I've watched yep, it eight same. times at least, probably more. And I just jump around on different episodes that make me feel something because they all do. And I yeah. love all the characters. I'm obsessed with them all. Uh, Dan, uh, Sarah, do you think it's eight? Is that your best guess? I, I, it has to be at least eight. At least. Eight plus, Dan? Oh. All of the seasons, probably more like four. I was going to say, yeah. I was doing it over and over while the show was coming out. So, mm, right. uh, probably, yeah, four or five. Yeah, I didn't really get into Mad Men until it was like through its fifth season. Almost over. At least. Yeah, yeah, so I think full watches since then, it's been seven years or something. Yeah, I say like five at least, start to finish. Yeah, I think Sometimes I'm, Chelsea and I, I will I've... peter off as we get to the finale because finales are bummers and we'll just they find are, a new show. But they're beautiful. Yeah. They're are you gorgeous. serious? You don't want to see the fall in love? You don't want to see Stan? I know what all these yeah, feelings I are, and sometimes they take up too much emotional RAM to go through. You go through <laughs> it. Yeah. You no. love the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I love all of it. But who's the not, who's yeah. the evil company that buys them? McCann. McCann, McCann Erickson. There's also a, a lot of those guys in the last season, and it's like uh, that's hard. so miserable. That's the thing is like when you love characters, uh, if they're like staying with them for so long, do you really need to watch them suffer that many times? Yes. Like I'm mad or like uh, Breaking Bad is fantastic. I'm never gonna watch it again. It is exhausting. Mm. Like fair enough, mm-hmm. right? Just to go on that. But how about seven se- seasons of a prequel series? Oh, better call. I have a lot of call. respect for Odenkirk, Bob Odenkirk. Yeah, yeah I know. I'm, I've but not I'm watched not that, show, that show. Yeah. I'm not gonna watch that show. I genuinely think my Mad Men number is 10 plus full seasons. Full seasons. I really do. And like, it's a great show to pick a random episode that you know is dope because every episode feels complete. It never feels like we just got a random snapshot. of. Yeah, there was never a filler episode. These are all so meticulously made, so deliberate in every aspect of design that like I was saying earlier, you just pick a different thing to watch for and it feels new again. But, like, it really is a show that I think watching once would be a criminal act. Yeah. Like, that I would not be inclined to forgive. (laughs) Uh, You know what I mean, though? Because even, like, right from the beginning, there's so much that when you have knowledge of the entire show feels so alive and connected that, like, at least two. You gotta watch it two times to pick up on some of these details. Your evolution changes. I watched it first time at 16, and I thought, oh, Don's great. What's Betty's problem? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, you grow a lot, and you come to see things for what they are, and maybe understand that, oh, women have agency and all that. No, it's true. Any, like, thing like this is an excellent tool for self-reflection, because it's like the moving target we talked about of, like, cultural expectations of a hero. Is it's a, it becomes a benchmark for like oh I I feel this way now when I like you know. it uh I think that dawn is like what you have to do is like sort of a focus or at least like a starting point for talking about the show which we've done in but it's like I could see an episode about Pete I could see an episode about either Betty gets her own and Peggy gets her own or we do like the women of Mad Men yeah. because again we didn't talk enough about how this is one of the most pre- prestigious shows on like a, a major cable network. Mostly written by women. Mm-hmm. Like, Matthew Weiner is always the name you hear, but it was like, there's a total of, like, nine writers and seven of them are yeah, women. Yeah, and some like, of the and episodes are directed by as well. 
and it just feels different than almost every other show, even ones that are about women characters. Like, yeah, it feels yes. so much more authentic. And we could really get into um, cool archetypal stuff. Like, one of the analysis things I was yeah. looking at was, like, check out the, like, uh, what was it, Maiden and Crone and uh, Mother, <laughs> like, aspects of yeah, a woman. And it's yeah, like, yeah. in this episode, it's Sylvia, Peggy, and Joan. And <laughs> see, oh, Dude, it's so, so amazing. The episode All the Beautiful Girls uh, is incredible yeah. for that. The episode, uh, the maiden form episode yes. is really Both iconic, where it's the men talking about how there are two sides of every woman. Yeah, and it's just like um, their fantasy for women. Yeah. yeah. And so perfectly representatively grounded in its time. Like, mm-hmm. anyway, I, I I have fallen victim to this thing where it's just like you start talking about one cool thing so about Mad Men and it never ends. Yeah. Uh, last thing, let's say, which character are you in the show? Mm. Who do you see yourself I want to be Peggy. I think don't I we all? wait. I don't want to be Peggy because she suffers a lot. Uh, yeah, right. But also, she ends up okay. So I, but I don't want to be Joan because she has it worse. Uh, I want to yeah. be Roger. I want to be Roger. It's not who do you no, want exactly. to be. Oh, you can't be I guess I'm Peggy. I think I, I would go Peggy. Maybe. Fuck yeah, dude. Yeah, go full Peggy. Because I get Dan? really irritated. <laughs> Dan, you can... Uh, I was asking Chelsea about this, and I think there are like, some aspects to Ken Cosgrove that line up. In, oh, I see it. Like, a, I the power it. is charm and loving your wife. <laughs> but, uh, like, late season Stan also feels good, because he's just, like, high and feeling very good about it. Like, the art of what he's mm. doing, even though it's a job to him. Like, did you think this was good? Did it make you think about suicide? Yeah, that's why it's (laughs) great. Like, oh. He's so amazing. I can see you as a Stan, for sure. He's aspirational. Exactly. For sure, but I definitely agree that you are Stan. If you say Paul Kinsey, I will turn off. Oh, yeah, Paul Kinsey. (laughs) Shut your mouth! No, it's the easiest... It's the easiest one-to-one I've ever seen in my life. Oh my like, God. I am Paul Kinsey. Paul is the fears that? and insecurities of everyone that like, <laughs> exactly. has thought things. Yeah. That's why he stands out to me. Stands who I want to be, but I know I am Paul. You're closer to Stan Incredible. than Paul. You Thanks. just Because you have the self-awareness to see yourself as Paul, you cannot therefore be Paul. You cannot therefore yeah. be Paul. I think that... Paul Kinsey is so authentic to me as a representative summation of all of these. Like, You're too unkind to And he feels like a writer's character. Like, there are a lot of jokes. Yeah. Like, I wonder if he's autobiographical for Matthew Weiner's fears, you <laughs> totally. know? Or, like, with the, I often with wonder the that about characters yeah. like him. Because he's not... It's not that you never, ever empathize with him, but honestly... <laughs> it's pretty mean to him because he's just like a pretty he's a pretty big piece of shit and like in a in a sad clown way yeah. but he doesn't a sad clown that doesn't want to be a sad clown do you guys remember when the onion had that spin-off site the click hole and it would do like yeah. choose your own adventures or surveys yeah. in satire <laughs> the mad men one makes me laugh all the time <laughs> it was like <laughs> no matter what yeah uh, what character are you and as you go through it it's like look man we know you want to be Don Draper but you're not you're gonna be Pete don't do this to yourself <laughs> And, like, every result was Pete. <laughs> He's like, are you happy yeah. now? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. And when you've seen the fullness of the show, that's no bad thing. No, I, his, Pete Redemption Arc is one of the, like, I think it was controversial as it happened. Like, why does he get it? But I am so with him I for the journey. It makes perfect 100%. sense. He's actually finding happiness. And he knew he had to escape Manhattan to do it. Right, like, he idolizes Dawn for so hard and then gets to a place where he's, like, on Dawn's level of, like, success and business acumen, but is able to pull back and be like, I don't, I want to be loved more than I want this. 
<laughs> the era of the like two and a half season era of Pete treating Don like just like a stud animal. And his dad. I think yeah. he calls him like oh, horse a flesh. temperamental yeah. piece of horse flesh. <laughs> but like where Don't he's just like, wait to go, buddy. Yeah. You're the goodest you're the goodest buddy and you're gonna do a great job. And, right. and Don's it, just like even before Don's yeah. like I wish you handled clients as well as you're handling me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except eventually he stops noticing yeah, or he's just like, getting even more subtle and deft yeah. with his touch. Yeah. Tom, you can't see yourself as anyone else, not even like a Roger or something like that, maybe even a Ken. Yeah, you see like, I see elements of myself in Roger mainly in like I think you're you know, very being self-aware. Very entitled. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I mean, no. <laughs> what about a Glenn? Like, like an awkward teen. <laughs> yeah, there you go. God, I don't want to be Glenn. No I probably to. am Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the I am doorman. baby Jean. Yeah. Glenn Milfunk. <laughs> There's the literally an episode about that with Joan's friend coming to town. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Certain kind of men come here. Oh, my God. Yep. Oh, I wish we still had phone restaurants. And Howard Johnson's with clams. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so and good. Or Sherbert. Mm. That's why we make 24 flavors. <laughs> We could do a whole episode on Megan because uh, my my like I love how much my opinion of Megan has changed. Mainly like the first three watches of the show. She evokes strong emotions. I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. No, the first time I was like, poor Saint Megan has suffered. And the second time I'm like, I don't know, she's kinda acting like an eight year old. Well, it's there's a couple Uh, characters that uh, like her dad calls her out on like skip the struggle. Yes. Right? And what that does to you. (laughs) And like Jane becomes uh, like a snobby, sophisticated, oh, I got a nosebleed above whatever street. Like, whereas, like, you were yeah. a secretary two weeks ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Right? And Megan is the only one who gets infantilized even more than Betty. And, like, she resists it. But there are all these characters being like, you're just a little baby. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know, you dumb idiot? I'm Tom, and I would love to keep recording, but I've got tickets to the Bean Ballet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm Dan, and am I to entertain your entire ballad of dissatisfaction? Because I am at work, dear. Uh, I'm Sarah, and golly! (laughs) This was a great episode. (laughs) It's toasted. It's toasted. Yeah, the episode is toasted. (laughs) It's toasted. Uh, Thank you all for joining us. And, um... Yeah. It might qualify as indulging us to listen to us talk about Mad Men for one to one I, and a half hours, so. but God, we love it. Yeah, get in love on it, and we'll talk and to we Mad Men. For listening. Yeah, yeah. Like the episode, rate and review it, and we'll talk to you about Mad Men anytime. As a <laughs> yeah, prove your love. Promise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Say goodbye, babies. Goodbye, babies. Goodbye, babies. Let me out of here. Let me out of here. Get me out of here. Let me out of here.
who you really want to be is <laughs> Megan's mom. Because, like, you know what? Actually, no. <laughs> Hell yeah. Oh, crap. I meant to bet Sarah before we started that you would call her a throat goat before this was over. <laughs> <laughs> she is a throat goat because... Let me tell you, in terms of implied blowjobs, that's going that to town. Convincing. Yeah. Very convincing. Ferocious for your first time meeting a person to goat oh. that throat. <laughs> oh, no. This is still a podcast for just our family. We've done too much. <laughs> We're scarring everybody. I'm so sorry. Sally and every listener. Yep. Yeah. This is a well, real codfish ball note. of an episode. I am the throat's goat. <laughs> <laughs> the world cannot support that many throat goats. <laughs> God, I, 